John was confounded when the Lord presented himself at the River Jordan, alongside those whose souls were desperate for cleansing. But in one sense, I suppose it was a small thing to be buried in the waters of baptism when burial in a tomb was not far off. And both would end by rising. Beloved son, the sinless one, the Lord of all. A humble act for the King of glory, just one more way to stand with humanity, to climb into our skin as if our sins were his own, a servant to the end. No wonder the Father was pleased. Is it too much then that we Gentiles of every hue and nation who celebrate the nonpartisan good news of God's great gift, should be called to live lives in harmony with him and to sing together hallelujah. Matthew, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, and discusses describes Jesus' baptism. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Second reading is from Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 46. Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John announced, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did, both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in his, him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. 
The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. The word of the Lord. There's Jesus, the mystic prophet. There's Jesus, the kind boyfriend. We paint Jesus in all of these ways and more. In large measure because his actions are actions set in a time and a place so foreign to us. For many of us, first century Palestine might as well be Mars. It, it, is a, it is a world that we do not fully understand or grasp. And so we bring Jesus into our world and we try to make him relevant. Ah, yes, the relevant Jesus. The one who creates order out of my chaos. The daytimer Jesus. The one who takes the mess of my life and puts everything in the right columns so that I can get on with being the successful person that God created me to be. Right? Do I get an amen? But in truth, Jesus is none of those things. Maybe better put, he's all of those things. But I really think in my heart of hearts, Jesus is none of those things. He's not the great organizer. He's not the awesome teacher. He's not the good example. He's not the mystic prophet. He better not be the kind boyfriend. He's just not those things. When we, when we build our image of Jesus and he is those things, we weaken him. And we make him less than what the Gospels present because the ultimate witness of the New Testament draws us to only one possible conclusion. Jesus is king. He trumps Caesar. But what sort of king does that? What sort of, what sort of king is he to be if we are to follow him? How do we, how do we become followers of King Jesus? Our two texts this morning in different ways give us different insights into how to understand Jesus as King. And they do so without ever using that term. The baptismal text, Matthew 3, 13 to 17, is of particular interest for me because as I was preparing for this sermon, I realized that the baptism of Jesus is mentioned in every gospel, unlike the birth of Jesus. You ever think maybe we put too much emphasis on one holiday versus the other? The gospels think this is pretty important. The birth, yeah, well... Matthew and Luke thought it was important. 
Mark and John had other agenda. But all four gospel writers thought this event was pretty serious. Maybe the Christmas story isn't quite the holiday we've made it to be. Maybe this is the day we ought to give gifts to each other. All four baptismal narratives, Matthew 3, 13 to 17, Mark 1, 9 to 11, Luke 3, 21 to 22, and John 1, 29 to 34. All four narratives have the same essential components. Jesus presents himself for baptism, and there is divine acknowledgement of that baptism. But Matthew's narrative is different. In all the other gospel narratives, there's almost a natural assumption that Jesus would, should, must be baptized. Yeah, there's a little fussing by John the Baptist in a couple of the narratives, but it's just sort of assumed this is going to happen. Not in Matthew. Jesus is the one who comes forward. It isn't a big deal about John's preaching. It's Jesus comes to John. And John doesn't just make, oh, I'm not worthy to, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, Jesus. I can't, I can't untie your sandals. It's, no, I shouldn't do this. He's resistant to the idea of baptism. He holds Jesus at arm's length. And that's when Jesus delivers this amazing punchline. The only time in the Gospels that Jesus says why he should be baptized. He says it fulfills all righteousness. Pasen duakasune. It's a Greek term that means fulfilling all justice. We've translated diakosune as righteousness, not really knowing what righteousness really means, because it's one of those words that we can infuse sort of anything. You know, it's righteousness means don't be naughty, be nice, because Santa Claus is still might be coming to town, you know. But but the best New Testament translation for diakosune is justice. Jesus wants to be baptized by John in order to fulfill the call to justice. He is doing this to make a point about being a king. His agenda is justice, right relationship between God and humanity, between friends and enemies between human beings and the created order. Jesus is saying, my baptism is the starting point of God's effort to make whole the world, to restore right relationships, to fulfill all justice. It's the only time in the Gospels that Jesus' purpose in being baptized is really mentioned, that Jesus says, this is why I need to be baptized. And it's that act of faithfulness, it's that commitment to this kingly mission that draws 
the divine response. The heavens break open and a voice cries out, this is my beloved son. This is who you need to follow. This is the king. Take him seriously. Do what he says. In all the other Gospels, baptism means something else. And in all the other Gospels, Jesus' ministry is inaugurated in another way. In Mark, it's with disciple recruitment. With Luke, it's the sermon in Capernaum. With John, it's the wedding miracle at Canaan. But with Matthew, Jesus' ministry is launched. It's launched. His kingly role is initiated in the waters of baptism. Jesus answers the call to fulfill justice in the world by identifying himself with God's renewing act through John the Baptist. That's why Jesus needed to be baptized. To be able to say to the world, God is at work doing a new thing. God will break down all the old barriers, all the old ways of lording power over one another, and will call us to a new way of being, a way of justice, of right relationships. Peter's story in Acts chapter 10 is also a pivotal story in the life of the Jesus movement. Peter goes on vacation. Joppa is a seaside town. He goes and spends some time at a friend's house or a friend of a friend's house. It's beachfront property. It's got an upstairs level area that promenades out over the ocean and Peter goes there the cares of being an apostle roll off his shoulders he sits in the barca lounger and he falls asleep not that I've ever done that before and he has a dream hate it when that happens he has a vision verses 10 to 16, that flies in the face of the purity rules of first century Palestinian Judaism. To be a good Jew in Palestine in the first century, in the time of Jesus, you needed to do three things. You needed to be circumcised, you needed to eat kosher, you needed to keep Sabbath. If you did those things, didn't really matter what your lineage was, you could be a Jew. It's how you converted. You guys got circumcised as adults. Ouch. Um, these purity rules dominated the way the Pharisees acted in the world. And in the earliest church, the church before Acts 10, they're wrestling with this. What, does, what did the day of Pentecost really mean? These were Jews from around the world. These were diasporan Jews coming to the temple who received the Holy Spirit, who heard the good news of Jesus. 
who responded in faith. What what does that mean for us? And they're continuing to wrestle with that through Acts 6 and the story of of the formation of the deacons and through Stephen's stoning and and Paul going berserk and Saul of Tarsus going berserk and, and, and going after the early church and then all of a sudden meeting Jesus on the Damascus Road. And now sort of to catch his breath and gather strength, Peter's taken a vacation and God shows up in a dream and says, Peter, the way you've been doing it, no, not so much. Kill and eat. What I've created can't be unclean. This flies in the face of everything Peter has been taught. From the earliest days of synagogue school, on Saturday morning, with the flannel graph. They didn't have flannel graph back then. I just wanted to see if you were awake. They stressed that the covenant with God was built around these acts of purity, and now comes a vision that says, and not so much. Whatever I've created already is pure. Well, now, Peter's you know, kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. He doesn't quite know what to do. And he wakes up out of this dream, and there's a knock at the door. And it's soldiers. Now, this can't be good. You know, when soldiers show up and you live in an occupied territory, this isn't good. And they want Peter to come with them. Really not good. This has got bad just written all over it. And they're on their way, not to just any old soldier's barracks. They're on their way to see Cornelius. Cornelius, chapter 10, verse 1, is the commanding officer of the occupation forces in the region. He is, for all intents and purposes, he's the head of the Gestapo. He is the bad guy. He is the personification to a first century Palestinian Jew. He Cornelius is the personification of everything that's wrong in their country. He's the enemy. And now soldiers from that enemy have come and asked if Peter wouldn't mind accompanying them for a brief visit with the commander. Oh, this just can't be good. Peter comes along and Cornelius meets him and bows in his presence. Now Peter is totally just, what is going on? Because he's had this dream about what's clean and what's unclean and nothing is unclean. And and the commander of the occupation forces, the enemy, is bowing at Peter's feet. And he says, Essentially, Peter, we've discovered Jesus. Could you tell us some more? These were not the words Peter was planning on hearing. And what we read this morning, what Andrew read for us, was Peter's response. Oh, now I see that God shows no favoritism. Duh! Peter can be a bit thick, but he got it. No favoritism. 
God's at work in everyone. And it doesn't matter if you're the enemy or my friend. God's at work in your life. And while this seems impossible to everything Peter has been taught and everything he's experienced up to and up to that point, here it is, this transformation in Cornelius, this discovery of Jesus and how it's changing Cornelius' life in ways Cornelius doesn't even fully understand yet. And Peter realizes God's at work in a new way. Peter is converted again in that moment. Any of you think conversion only happens once in your life? We get converted over and over and over again as, as God gives us greater and greater insight into his plan and his purpose, his mission and his call. And Peter has a moment of conversion here. Now I realize God shows no favoritism. There is this new social ethic that dominates Peter's life. It's not about preserving purity. It's about being open to everyone. It's about the gospel being available to everyone. It's not about hurtling over the barriers that the early church can create to preserve and protect what we value. It's about hearing how God is at work in the lives of everyone and identifying fingerprints of Jesus at work in the life of even our worst enemy. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure that Jesus has really nothing to do, wants nothing to do with my worst enemy. I mean, when I envision my worst enemy... Jesus being his friend is not on my radar screen. I still need that conversion in my own life. And here's Peter coming to terms with that. A new social ethic. Not, not the church's protector of its boundaries. Keeper of its privileges. But a church that is open to the handiwork of God in the lives of everyone. Even people that we can't imagine God would want anything to do with. Peter also develops a new appreciation for his own heritage. He realizes in that moment, the penny drops, and he goes, oh, being Jewish has is not been about creating barriers and making sure everybody's pure. It's been about getting ready to do the work of God in the world. That God has a mission that he's called us to. To be open to God's work in the world. And, and now I understand that. And so Peter makes a new commitment in his conversion. He commits himself as a servant of Jesus' mission. And re renews his sense of Christ's commission in his life. He commits himself to Jesus, to whom everything points. And what happens? Well, the same thing that happens when Jesus is baptized. When Peter commits 
to fulfilling all righteousness, when Peter commits to pasendiakasune, to doing justice, Pentecost 2.0 happens. The Holy Spirit shows up and, and, and those who came with Peter, probably at a distance, because, you know, yeah, Peter, they asked for you. We're just kind of tagging along, making sure, you know, when you get killed, we can tell people that you got killed. They're astonished. They are flabbergasted that the Holy Spirit has shown up and that Gentiles who don't eat kosher, don't keep the Sabbath, and although we don't know for sure, probably aren't circumcised, they're speaking in tongues just like we did on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has shown up. What's going on with this? They're flabbergasted. And Peter, right then and there, makes the decision that changes the church. Now there will be, between chapters 11 and 15, there will be a lot of committee meetings. The minutes of which we don't have all of. But there will be repercussions for what Peter says here at the end. And it will involve lots of committee meetings. Because Peter says, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They receive the Holy Spirit just as we have. Peter makes a theological assumption, decision there. It's done. I'm going to go back to Joppa and enjoy the rest of my vacation. And between chapters 11 and the Jerusalem conference in chapter 15, whose minutes we do have, there's a whole bunch of tussle. There's a whole can of worms that has just been opened. This was not a popular decision that Peter has made. The folks back in Jerusalem are going to be disappointed. And they're going to make a big deal about it. So... What's the common ground between Jesus' baptism and Peter's vision? Well, I think there are, there are three things, at least. First of all, I think both of these stories teach us that servant living leads to faithful discipleship, not the other way around. We don't figure out our way into being servants. We don't, we don't disciple our way into becoming a servant. And in serving, we figure out what it means to follow Jesus. As we serve the world, as we fulfill all righteousness, as we do justice, as we seek right relationships with, with God and with our friends and with our enemies and in ourselves and with creation, as we seek those right relationships, we become disciples. We are so good in the church at trying to make discipleship a program of learning so that we can figure out how to serve the world. Just do it. You know, one thing Nike got right. It's their slogan. Just do it. And the discipleship follows. Servant living leads to faithful discipleship. Servant living leads to the Holy Spirit showing up. You want the Holy Spirit to show up in your life, in our life as a congregation? Let us be servants 
of one another, servants of our neighborhood, servants of those whom we are frustrated with, servants of God's creation, servants of God. As we seek to live as servants, things change. We become disciples. The Holy Spirit shows up. Secondly, showing no favoritism doesn't mean that God is somehow stuck in some kind of cosmic neutrality. It means that fulfilling all righteousness is the only identity that matters. See, it didn't matter to God that Cornelius was a Roman soldier. It didn't matter to God that Cornelius was a Roman officer. It didn't matter to God that Cornelius was the commanding officer of an occupying army. What mattered was Cornelius was open to the voice of God. All of that other stuff would transform later on, we hope. But showing no favoritism doesn't mean God is a whatever God. Doesn't mean that God is a you do your thing and I'll do my thing and if we happen to meet in the middle, isn't that cool kind of God. God isn't stuck in a cosmic neutrality. God has a point of view. And if we're paying attention to Scripture, that point of view prefers the poor. Just saying. Fulfilling all righteousness is the identity that we adopt. Followers of Jesus is the only identity that matters. Whatever your principal identity is, vocational, gender, racial, ethnic, sexual, I'm here to tell you today that that's secondary and distant secondary to the only identity point that matters to God. Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you committed to fulfilling all righteousness? Are you at work to bring justice, right relationship into the world? If you are, great. If not, you're following in a great adventure in missing the point. And then thirdly, the launch of Jesus' mission and ministry is baptism and the transformation of the church in welcoming Gentiles tells a story of radical inclusion into God's mission. God calls us to be inclusive of everyone. It doesn't mean we don't call people to standards or faithfulness or that discipleship has difficult demands that they place on our lives. But it does mean that we sit together and welcome each other. That we don't create barriers that say, until you attain our standards, the kingdom of God's not available for you. We don't do that. Church is to be a place that radically includes everyone. And then has the conversation together. What does it mean for us to follow Jesus daily in life? And Jesus' baptism 
and Peter's encounter with Cornelius reinforce that point. That God's business is about making room for everyone in His kingdom. So this morning, some questions for us. How do we need to be converted? Oh, pastor, I'm already converted. I already followed Jesus. Great. How's it going with your worst enemy? How do we need to be converted? What do we need conversion in? What might it mean for us to fulfill all righteousness, to do justice, to build right relationships? How have we expected God to show favoritism to our point of view? Please don't sit there this morning and tell me you haven't done that. I know better. We've all done it. God loves me best. I'm his favorite in the kingdom. All God's children, I'm his favorite. Yeah, not so much. But we've expected God to show up and put his arm around us and say, yeah, this is the way. This is poor suffering servant. This is how you're supposed to do it. God doesn't show favoritism to us. Doesn't mean he's stuck in neutral. Means he calls us all to a difficult task. What is God doing in our world that might, just might, astonish you? What is God doing in our midst that astonishes us and makes you go, oh, I didn't see that coming. I'm not real prepared for that. It's going to be hard to adjust to that reality. How is God astonishing you these days? And lastly, whom do we need to serve? Who needs us to stop and roll up our sleeves and not in an attempt to show favoritism or to proclaim our purity, but to simply fulfill all righteousness, to do justice? Whom do we need to serve? One more thing. In the gospel of Jesus, sincere and costly discipleship is always accompanying, always accompanies genuine conversion. The gospel of Jesus teaches men and women that a mere profession of faith alone is no sound evidence of salvation. In other words, we need to reject any form of Christianity that ignores or explains away Jesus as king. Because Jesus is the one greater than any of our Caesars. Jesus is the one who rules over any and all of our self-definitions. Jesus is the one. Let's pray. God, we're not always ready to hear your words, but you act anyway. As Peter couldn't yet hear, and as John the Baptist even resisted, you still speak. And so, ready or not, Lord Jesus, 
Teach us how to be servants, for you are the servant king. Teach us how to do justice, for you came to fulfill all righteousness. Amen.